You've joined this event to think about ancient Greek ideas of justice, but let me start for contrast with a modern American one. So imagine that before being allowed into this room or onto this live stream, you were required, in order to think about justice, to put on a magic blindfold that erased most of your knowledge about yourself, your race, ethnicity, and gender, your skills and aspirations, your current income and wealth, your lifelong earning prospects. The idea is that only by veiling all of those facts from view could you be properly situated to think about what is just and fair. Otherwise, you'd come to the table to debate justice already predisposed to think in ways that would benefit yourself, to seek even subconsciously to entrench any privileges that the real life you might possess, or to smooth the path for your own group's later success. The Gresham College lecture that you're listening to right now is giving you knowledge and insight from one of the world's leading academic experts. Making it takes a lot of time, but because we want to encourage a love of learning, we think it's well worth it. We never make you pay for lectures, although donations are needed. All we ask in return is this. Send a link to this lecture to someone you think would benefit, and if you haven't already, click the follow or subscribe button from wherever you're listening right now. Now, let's get back to the lecture. So that kind of magic blindfold was proposed by the 20th century American philosopher John Rawls, who called it a veil of ignorance needed in order to reason properly about what justice requires. So Rawls thought of justice as a social contract of a very special kind, one that we can identify not through any actual process of negotiation, but only through hypothetical reasoning that we test against our fundamental convictions. So Rawls's masterpiece, A Theory of Justice, was first published in 1971, but political theorists and economists continue to build on its basic approach. Just in the last two years, we've two, seen two major works, one by Daniel Chandler, Free and Equal, What Would a Fair Society Look Like, published earlier this year, and one by Baroness Manoush Shafiq, the former director of the London School of Economics and Political Science, now the president of Columbia University. So let me draw on them for a moment to flesh out Rawls's approach further. So Chandler, describing Rawls's ideas in his own work, explains further, the approach of the veil of ignorance, this magic blindfold as I call it, is, to, is, is in contrast to real life where people with more resources or social status would be able to influence the outcome. Instead, Rawls's original position behind the veil asks us to envisage the contract that citizens would enter into if everyone had the same degree of influence and was unaware of their particular circumstances. Again, how much money they had, their race, gender, or sexuality, even their religious beliefs, and their wider goals in life. And so Chandler continues, the veil of ignorance encapsulates the intuitive idea that just because something is good for us individually doesn't mean it is fair. And as Shafiq has written in her own study, What We Owe Each Other, if we did not know if we would start life privileged or a pauper, we would create a social contract that was just. Now, many aspects of Rawls's approach were innovative, but the idea of the veil was meant to be familiar. It was meant to be intuitive. That was meant to kind of capture an intuitive approach to justice that people find appealing. After all, courtrooms around the world are adorned with images of lady justice, a female figure often depicted as wearing a blindfold, carrying scales, and sometimes a sword. So the veil in the form of a blindfold has come to symbolize 
very legibly and intuitively this impartiality of justice, judging without fear or favor. But not so for the ancient Greeks. So when we look at ancient Greek ideas of justice, by contrast, they're never characterized by a blindfold. They were actually characterized by keenness of sight, which I will follow the art historian Valerie Hayart in calling clear-sightedness. So this is the ancient Greek goddess Themis, representing divine justice in an ancient image from about the um, 300 BCE, so the turn of the fourth to third century. And equally, her daughter with Zeus, Dike, representing human justice, also known as Astraea. This is a modern image. But neither of them, as you can see, in this respect, this modern image is authentic, was ever depicted as blindfolded. So the only iconography that identified them as goddesses of justice was the set of weighing scales. The Roman author, Aulus Gellius, described the Stoic philosopher Chrysippus, who had written in Greek, as characterizing the goddess of justice as gazing with a sharp glance of the eyes, keen-sightedness. So the blindfold is actually a modern symbol, not an ancient Greek or Roman one. It's actually first attested in European imagery in 1494, initially as a negative satirical image that symbolizes a failure of judges to pay attention to their jobs. So the image that somehow has vanished is an image of um, someone sitting down with a jester behind them, tying their eyes with a blindfold, and the seated figure is justice. But in this case, in the 1494 woodcut that's sometimes attributed to Albrecht Dürer, the image is meant to be satirical. It's suggesting that the judges were failing to pay proper attention to their job. So they're being blindfolded so that they can't actually see what they should be paying attention to. But nevertheless, from the 16th century onward, the blindfold came to take on our more familiar positive association as a central image of impartiality, which became characteristic of Lady Justice. And so in a 1593 work that summarized early modern iconography, Cesare Ripa wrote that the personification of justice is a blindfolded woman. And he went on to describe other attributes, but he explained the blindfold by saying that nothing but pure reason, not the often misleading evidence of the senses, should be used in making judgments. So that's our more familiar idea. Now, there is one very interesting early modern image that may have, art historians are divided, an antecedent in a very late post-classical Greek source, and this was this image. So in Plutarch, writing in the late first century, turn of the second century of the Common Era, he recollects that in Thebes, he means Egyptian Thebes, there were set up statues of judges without hands, and the statue of the chief justice had its eyes closed to indicate that justice is not influenced by gifts or intercession. And this account of Plutarch may have inspired this short wave of early modern images around the um, around 1600 that shows judges with their hands amputated to capture their imperviousness to receiving bribes. And in the Greek, in Plutarch, it's described as their being adoron. So they're deprived of gifts because they literally can't take them. They have no hands to receive them. But that image was kind of a short-waved, uh, short-lived wave, but for the most part, from the 16th century onward, we have the positive association of the veil or blindfold, as we've come to know it now, suggesting that justice is going to be practiced with impartiality. Now, the classical Greeks also did value impartiality. So when we look to the Athenian juror oath, for example, the Athenian jurors, as Demosthenes reports, 
sworn themselves to judge with their most just judgment, and they shouldn't cast their votes through favor or any other unjust reason. But it never occurred to the ancient Greeks to symbolize that impartiality with the idea of a blindfold. Instead, it was keen-sightedness for them that justice required. So when the playwright Aeschylus, for example, this is a representation of his play, The Eumenides, in which he gave a mythological origin to the Athenian jury, the goddess Athena herself joins a jury that will replace blood vengeance with a measured and formal trial giving the possibility of acquittal. But again, this founding myth of Athenian justice was carried out without any hint of a blindfold. Of course, Athena was known for her keen gray eyes. So fundamentally in this lecture, I want to flesh out this contrast between justice with the Greeks as requiring clear-sightedness versus the Rawlsian veil or blindfold. And I'm going to do this by exploring the, the work of the ancient Greek lawgiver, Solon of Athens, who otherwise I think is very comparable to Rawls in seeking to rethink the basic terms of social justice for a society. So Rawls operated hypothetically, invoking the veil. Solon operated in actuality. He laid down laws that continued to govern Athens for centuries, but laid them down again without any hint of a veil or blindfold. And so this is Solon, and in this lecture, in what follows now, I want to explore this basic contrast between clear-sightedness and blindfoldedness as approaches to justice, while we look at how both Solon and Rawls thought fundamentally about the relations between the rich and the poor. So this is central to both of them, but they take up this very different stance in approaching that relationship. And then in conclusion, I'll explore some measures that might today instantiate the aims that Solon sought to achieve. So two brief caveats. First of all, of course, there are many other ancient Greek ideas of justice that we might discuss, and perhaps we'll discuss some of them during the questions and answers. And indeed, I'll draw on others in my next lecture, which is on Greek ideas of equality under the law, because of those ideas are intimately connected to ideas about justice. Conversely, there are modern debates about justice to which the Greeks were generally indifferent. Neither Solon nor other ancient Greeks envisaged equality of opportunity for upward mobility as a likely social outcome. A few ancient Greeks did make fortunes, but it was much more likely, as we'll see, that people would slide into bankruptcy than that they would make it to the economic top. So while Rawls, for example, and many modern authors build fair equality of opportunity into a framework for social justice, that's not a topic about which Greek ideas are going to be much help to us. Nevertheless, as I'll now argue, we can learn a great deal by comparing the different ways that Solon and Rawls approach the question of establishing justice between the rich and the poor, and the contrast between clear-sightedness and blindfoldedness in doing so. So to set that up, let me just say one more word about Rawls. I want to present one of the principles of justice that Rawls argued people would have most reason to choose from behind the blindfold or veil. And he called this the difference principle. So the difference principle reads, social and economic inequalities are to be arranged so that they are to the expected benefit of the least advantaged. So Rawls held that justice does not require complete economic equality. Justice allows inequalities, as this principle says, but the inequalities have to be pegged to their capacity to generate gains for the poorest. So his idea, for example, was that if you created incentives for greater productivity or innovation, which could raise the level of those at the bottom, that could be justified in allowing more inequality at the top. But a ceiling was imposed. You couldn't allow 
that much more inequality at the top if it didn't serve the function of raising the level of the bottom. So the idea is that behind the blindfold, no one would endorse any greater allowance for inequality because everyone would be aware that while they themselves might have a chance of ending up at the top position, they have an equal chance so far as they know from behind the veil of ending up at the bottom. And so Rawls thought the rational thing to do was to bolster the bottom position so far as you could. Now, like Rawls, Solon also rejected the idea that justice required perfectly equal economic holdings. So as he wrote in one poem, it did not please me to allow the equal division of our rich fatherland among poor and rich alike. But whereas Rawls wanted to establish both a floor and a ceiling pegged together, Solon focused primarily only on establishing a, seal, a floor beneath the feet of the poor. But to do so, he argued, you needed to see clearly what the basic divisions in society were. And so my wager is that thinking about Solon in this dialogue with Rawls can help us to think further about what basic terms of justice a democracy might require today and how best we can identify them. So let me now turn then to say something more to introduce Solon of Athens, poet, arbitrator, and lawgiver. So Aeschylus's play that I mentioned, The Eumenides, was depicting a mythic, legendary time. But Solon was a real person who composed poetry as well as laws. He's actually probably the archaic Greek person about whom we know the most. We can read records of his words and deeds as they crystallized in the century or so after he died, when his oral poems were written down, and in the painted inscriptions of his laws on wooden notice boards, which he ordered should be set up, and which were still visible centuries after he died. And there are references to Solon in many of our authors, including Herodotus, Aristophanes, Plato, Aristotle. But we also have two major narrative sources about Solon, and I'm going to quote from both of them extensively. So one of them is the Constitution of Athens, which was composed in the circle of Aristotle's Lyceum in the late 4th century BCE. I like to think of it as having been written by Aristotle's graduate students. And this is a papyrus um, on which it was identified only in the 19th century. So Aristotle's circle, actually, we are told, assembled 158 different constitutions of different Greek uh, cities. But this is the only one which survives in, in part, in, in, in this case, in a large part. And the other major source um, is a biography of Solon by Plutarch. Um, who I've already mentioned. This is uh, from uh, uh, the second century. B uh, C sorry, that says BCE. That should be CE. Um, and this is in his compilation of lives of famous Greek and Roman statesmen in which he systematically paired and compared one Greek and one Roman. So scholars have done a great deal of work on the differences of detail between these two narratives. But for my purposes tonight, I'm just going to draw on them both. And the general view that we take is that while not every word in these texts can be authentic to Solon, but I follow the scholar Adele Scafuro who holds that there is an authentic Solonian kernel in these different records. So when we look at these later records of his poems and his laws, we can identify something authentic in Solon's voice, even if not every word that's attributed to him was likely his. So Solon was born to an elite family in Athens toward the end of the seventh century before the Common Era. But he had a special status in his life of having affinities with both the rich and the poor. So Aristophanes' Clouds has one character remark that by nature, old Solon was a friend of the people. So he was both a member of the elite, but also a friend of the common people. 
we think that he came to this reputation in part because he came to publicly compose and perform oral poetry. He's the first known Athenian poet. There were other poets elsewhere of whom we have earlier records. And so he won a public reputation as a wise, cultivated person, even one of the seven wise men of ancient Greece. But at the same time, on one account, his father's generosity had depleted much of the family fortune. He'd given much of it away. And so Solon actually went into trade, which was an unusual decision for someone born into an elite family. And that meant that he traveled, he amassed wisdom from foreign sources, but he also built up a network of contacts and trust with the poorer citizens of Athens. And so that seems to be what gave him his special status in which he was trusted by both sides. And as our sources tell us, there were two sides in the city fundamentally at this moment, and it was this division between the rich and the poor. So Plutarch, again, this is Plutarch, writes that at that time, in Solon's lifetime, there was a great disparity between the rich and the poor, and the city was in an altogether perilous condition. So roughly speaking, perhaps 20% of the free population were an elite group, and the other 80% ranged in wealth and independence from small craftsmen to landless farmers. And many of the landless farmers owed a sixth of everything that they produced to the owners of the land. And so if they couldn't pay what they owed, they might be, as it were, indentured but until they could pay their debts. Moreover, the poor sometimes took out loans that they secured on their own bodies. And so the danger was that if they couldn't pay those debts, they would be forced into servitude or have to sell their children into slavery abroad. And if they went abroad in that condition, they permanently lost the protection of Athenian citizenship. So this is Solon dictating his laws, which he's going to deliver in order to resolve this problem. And this is an image of a slave. The smaller sta um, stature person is an image of a slave carrying a shield um, for his master. And these dangers of debt servitude or full-blown enslavement made the position of the 80% profoundly precarious. So this line between the rich and the poor generated a significant destabilization of the social fabric in Athens at the time. And there were other sources of political tension that the existing political institutions were ill-equipped to manage. So Solon tells us that it was at this perilous juncture in 594 BCE, so near the start of the 6th century, that Solon was chosen for the position of the preeminent archon, which was the highest public office. Now that, as I talked about in my first lecture, was an annual term, an annually established office with defined duties. But Solon was simultaneously given two further roles that were unusual. He was appointed to act as an arbitrator between the elite and the masses, and to act as a lawgiver. And he was asked to do so because the Athenians saw that he was the one man least implicated in the errors of the time. Plutarch again tells us he was neither associated with the rich in their injustice nor involved in the necessities of the poor. And so what were Solon's aims in undertaking these roles? So fortunately, he tells us in his poetry both written before and after the fact. So on the one hand, he did establish impartial legal processes. So again, we see that the Greeks do value forms of impartiality in justice. So as he writes, I put these things in force by joining might and right, that's literally decay or justice, together, and wrote laws equally for the poor and rich. So that might make it sound like he's going to treat the poor and the rich exactly alike. But as we'll see, actually in order to be fair to both sides, he actually treats them differently. So the reality of economic division remained, and on that front, he sets himself up, as he writes, as a boundary marker 
setting a fair boundary between the rich and the poor, and he describes himself as setting up a strong shield around both parties, again, not to allow either to defeat the other unjustly. So think again about those metaphors, a boundary marker, a shield. Neither of those is going to work well if the person wielding it is blindfolded. You need to see where to set the boundary marker. You need to see in order to wield the shield appropriately. So Solon had to be clear-sighted in positioning himself to protect each side, rich and poor, from the excessive demands or pressure from the other. And his aim was to avoid pleonexia, in Greek, excessive graspingness um, on either side. So how exactly did he do this? Again, seeking to act as a lawgiver. So now if we turn from his poetry to his laws, we can identify the actual program of justice that he sought and in fact did uh, succeed in implementing. So here he is again in a 19th century image acting as a lawgiver. And the primary laws that he passed in order to treat the rich and the poor in appropriate terms of justice as he saw it were laws aiming to set a secure floor underneath the poor to protect them both economically and politically. So crucial among his laws were the prohibition of loans on the security of the debtor's person and the fact that he canceled all debts, both private and public. And these come from that text from Aristotle's graduate students, The Constitution of Athens, but Plutarch reports roughly the same. So these laws then um, are seeking to decouple, at least in part, economic status from political power. So they impose a floor. You can't sink into slavery now if you're a free person because you can't anymore take debts on the security of your body, which would risk throwing you into slavery should you default. So that puts a floor underneath the poor to allow them to maintain their political status as equal citizens. But there's no ceiling put on the wealthy. Right? The wealthy can still be as rich as they might be. There's no pegging of the gains of the wealthy to the floor imposed for the poor. And there's no blindfold. We know exactly who are the poor and who are the rich. We know who has to be treated in what terms. So rather than being Rawlsian, Solon's approach is actually closer to an approach that was advocated by the political theorist Michael Walzer in this work's Fears of Justice. Walzer advocated that a just society should aim at preventing an inequality in one domain from generating inequality in another domain. And that's what we can see Solon is trying to do. Economic inequalities shouldn't bleed over into political ones. So for example, if someone is much shorter than other people, that inequality in height should be insulated from having an effect on their life chances. Now that's not a totally trivial example. Height discrimination is a real thing, although it's relatively minor. But Solon tried to tackle this much more significant decoupling that still concerns us today, how to decouple wealth and social status from either generating or undermining um, political standing, political equal standing. So I want to say a word more about what we saw described as the cancellation of debts. The Greek word that, was that is used to describe this in the ancient sources is the sysoktheia, the shaking off of burdens, which is actually the same root as our word seismic for earthquakes. So this was, this was described as a real earthquake in the constitution of Athenian society. It was a kind of one-off reset which freed the poor from their current burdens and so enabled them to engage more equally with the rich as fellow citizens. And I find it fascinating that again, already in antiquity, Plutarch here actually 
um, identifies this strategy as a kind of Waltzerian strategy of insulating different spheres of justice. So Plutarch writes in his comparison between Solon and Publicola, um, a Roman statesman, that what was peculiar to Solon was the remission of debts. And notice that he writes that the remission of debts confirmed the liberties of the citizens. For equality under the laws is of no avail if the poor are robbed of it by their debts. And of course, we think of the later aphorism that the rich and the poor are equally free in being free to sleep under bridges, right? This is the point which Plutarch was already identifying. So it was only the remission of debts that freed the poor from being under the thumb of the rich, as he goes on to write, and doing their orders, being at their beck and call in the courts. So when there was an excessive debt burden, even the courtroom justice, which was meant to be impartial, couldn't actually be practiced impartially because the poor would be under the thumb of, at the beck and call of the rich. Now, it's interesting that actually um, our ancient Greek narratives point out that cancellation of debts can be politically dangerous and it can bring unintended consequences. So both of our ancient narratives allege that Solon confided his intention to cancel debts to some of his wealthy friends who then engaged in insider trading. They bought they incurred debts and bought land and then sat back as their debts were abolished, but their land investments remained secure. So this is a risky strategy and it has to be timed appropriately and managed correctly, although the Constitution of Athens rejects an apparent accusation at the time that Solon himself was involved in the scam. So let me just add that Solon also, of course, passed many other laws um, and we're going to look at some in more detail, but let me add here that he also tried to bolster the power of the Athenian poor from the other side. So I've been emphasizing how he tried to decouple their economic standing from their political standing, but he also set up new measures of political inclusion. So he created new political roles for the poor in hearing appeals from the decisions of office holders, serving on the popular juries, and holding, popular office, holding office holders to account in other ways. So he didn't, just as he didn't abolish the distinction between rich and poor, we saw he didn't divide all property equally or land equally. He also didn't make all political power equal but he gave the poor this role which bolstered their, these various roles which bolstered their standing. So while the word for democracy was not invented until a century after Solon, as I'll discuss in my fourth lecture on the 14th of March, Solon was seen by later Athenians and others as having laid the foundations for democracy by giving these powers of political judgment to all citizens, which in practical terms meant giving them to the poor majority. So, so far I've been arguing that in contrast to Rawls's blindfold approach, Solon sought to take a clear-sighted view of the possibilities for creating a new Athenian framework for social justice, negotiating between the actual rich and the actual poor. So we're now able to test Solon against Rawls's challenge because Rawls would say, in taking that clear-sighted approach, wasn't Solon just giving in to the social realities of unequal power? That's exactly what Rawls is trying to forestall. And indeed, the scholar Josiah Ober, in a recent work, The Greeks and the Rational, has analyzed the dynamics of Solon's intervention in terms of game theory in exactly this kind of way. Ober argues that Solon started by seeing the unequal power of the two sides, and so having to impose a bargain that could be acceptable to both sides. So on Ober's interpretation, Solon could only go as far in effect as the rich would allow. If he went too far, the rich wouldn't accept the uh, arbitration that he performed and civil war would ensue. 
So Ober again takes this line of analysis to have been anticipated again by Plutarch. This text of Plutarch turns out to be more and more fascinating as one studies it. So Plutarch tells this fascinating anecdote about Solon in which he's said to have rebutted a criticism of his laws that was made by a visiting uh, Scythian philosopher. So the story is that this visiting philosopher, Anacharsis, laughed at Solon for thinking that he could guard against the injustices and the excessive graspingness of the citizens by means of written laws that were no different from spider's webs, which on capturing the weak and powerless would hold them fast, but would be broken through by the powerful and wealthy. And Solon replied that men safeguard their agreements with one another when there is profit for neither party in overstepping what has been laid down. And he was accommodating his laws to the citizens in such a way as to make it clear to all that the practice of justice was better than the transgression of the laws. Now, Ober emphasizes Solon's use here of the word prophet, which you can see in green in the second paragraph. So he reads this as describing an appeal solely to the citizen's self-interest. So Ober writes, describing this passage, for Solon, the practice of justice is not predicated on a moral duty, but rather on the prudent obedience to the laws by self-interested agents who, despite preferring to do injustice, fear the loss of suffering it. So this takes Solon's justice to be limited to this pre-existing horizon of self-interest. So Rawls might say this is not justice at all. If that's all justice is, if it's simply a bargain between the self-interested, this just isn't justice. Because Rawls' whole concern was that if we don't blindfold ourselves to the actual power discrepancies between the rich and the poor, the rich are going to be able to influence the outcome unduly. And that's exactly on Ober's analysis what happened. Solon had to set the boundary stone, but within a force field where there was far more power on the side of the rich. And so for Rawls, because the rich were able to sway where this new line of justice should be drawn, this shouldn't count as justice at all. It was what Rawls would call elsewhere a mere modus vivendi, a simple kind of way of getting along, a way of living together, but a way of living together that, that isn't affirmed on moral grounds. So what Rawls wants is not a settlement to which people have little or no principled commitment. He wants the opposite of a modus vivendi, a just settlement that people will value for its own sake, and so it will be supported regardless of shifts in the distribution of political power. But I want to suggest that there were more productive possibilities opened up by Solon's clear-sighted approach than Rawls would allow. I think Ober may be right that Solon's laws initially, his arbitration, did take the form of this kind of bargain between the rich and the poor that pulled more in the direction of the rich. But at the same time, Solon's laws and his poetry aspired to also cultivate a deeper, more transformative sense of justice. So Solon, through his laws, sought to build a true settlement, a just settlement, that would be a better way to live, a true civic understanding of justice going beyond this initial kind of tolerable bargain. And so we can see that in some of Solon's other complex of laws. So for example, in his laws, which are to do with banqueting, as you see in the last line of this quotation, right? how should citizens regulate their feasting together? They need to learn how to hold excess in check. This is again from Solon's poetry, telling us of some of the aims of his laws. And his laws included severe restrictions on feasting, on expenditure on funerals, and how people should behave in, on, in, in funerals, which was a major category of social expenditure that divided the rich from the poor. 
even how they should manage their dangerous dogs, which I know is a topic that's been much in the news recently. Um, he wrote a law um, also about that. So all of these laws about feasts, about funerals, about dress codes, all of these were trying to inculcate a more civic-minded orientation to temper one-upmanship and so create a civic ethos of justice that could go beyond the mere modus vivendi in which his arbitration may have begun. And actually here, Solon makes common cause with Rawls once again. Because Rawls, too, argued that justice must ultimately secure what he called the social bases of self-respect. So for Rawls, one of the reasons that we might insist on the difference principle, where we peg the gains of the rich to the position of the poor, is precisely because the parties in the original position behind the blindfold or veil would want to avoid at almost any cost the social conditions that undermine self-respect. So both Solon and Rawls ultimately see justice as something that you have to make sustainable over time. It can't just be a one-off bargain. It might start in a bargain, but then people's commitments need to be transformed if justice is truly going to be achieved and maintained. And it's important that even for Rawls, his readers sometimes neglect the fact that the original position was only a device of his theory. It was never meant to be the last word. We couldn't settle what justice is from behind the blindfold. That judgment is reserved for what he called reflective equilibrium, where we come back, we take off the blindfold or the veil, and we reflect on what we've learned. And so even for Rawls, the blindfold must at some point come off. So now, as I move to closing, I want to end by considering three more of Solon's specific laws that were, I think, in the spirit of the clear-sightedness approach to justice that the Greeks pioneered and look at what they might suggest about terms of justice today. So the first is transparency. And this may seem a very modern concern. It sounds like a very modern word. But Solon in Herodotus, this is Herodotus, is said to have borrowed a law from ancient Egypt which required each person to make an annual declaration to the office holders of the source of their livelihood. Now, many of our sources interpret this as a law against idleness, but it's also a law man mandating transparency about the sources of income and wealth. And what's interesting about this is that it applies transparency to everyone at all levels of society. So this challenges a common way in which transparency is applied today, which is to reserve it for those with special privileges or status. So we often think today we only need transparency about those at the top. So for example, the UK government is committed to disclosing the annual salaries of civil servants who earn above 150,000 pounds per year. And that's a laudable step toward transparency. But we might think, what about also disclosing the lowest salaries of the cleaners in the offices of those well-paid civil servants so that we can be sure that on zero hours contracts on which many of them are working, they're earning enough for an annual living wage. So the fact that we have an annual minimum, national minimum wage for hourly pay doesn't secure a, an annual wage in the way that this kind of disclosure could help. So I think Solon's transparency about the income of all people, rich or poor, again, clear-sightedness, suggests that we need disclosure to secure the social bases of self-respect in Rawls's terms for everyone, floor and ceiling, in order um, to test the existence of justice. Here's a second way of combining the concerns, indeed, of Solon and Rawls, which would be a progressive tax on wealth. 
And this, again, I think is prefigured by Solon's cancellation of debts, which led to at least one generation being able to bequeath far more assets than they otherwise would have been able to do. <clears throat> so Solon um, went some direction toward a progressive tax on wealth, but the Athenian democracy after his time would impose high special taxes on the wealthy. So this was an institution known as antithesis. And this is a very interesting way in which the wealthy would be identified to fund distinct public goods. So a warship or a festival chorus. So an individual wealthy person would be fingered as responsible to pay for that worship. But then they could say, well, no, actually, um, I don't have as much money as this other person, so I'll exchange wealth with them, and then they have to take my fortune and pay for the worship. And so this, this test then enabled people to sort of think, well, would I rather have their fortune? Is it really less or more than mine? Or do I rather want to keep my own fortune but actually pay for the worship um, myself? So this was a way, again, of kind of operationalizing transparency while imposing a kind of effective wealth tax by making the wealthy responsible for paying for particular public goods. But again, it required clear-sightedness. You had to identify individual wealthy people and then test whose fortune um, should be made to pay. So again, we can think of further requirements of disclosure, regulations on tax havens, on holding companies in order to achieve similar goals. So let me end with one final law of Solon, which I have not yet mentioned. And this is a paradoxical law that many scholars have wrestled with because it seeks not to moderate and reconcile opposing factions, but it seems on the face of it to reinforce them. Ah, so I had Count Thomas Piketty there uh, supporting wealth taxes. But this is the law that I want to end with. So we have this in both of our sources. So Plutarch says, this law prescribed that he who in strife does not take either side shall become atimos. They should lose their citizen privileges. Atimos is literally be without honor, in this case, without civic honor or standing. And the Constitution of Athens adds that such a person shall become atimos and shall have no share in the city. Now, these laws, this law sounds very paradoxical because it sounds like Solon is saying people should become polarized. They should take sides in civic strife. And that seems to be the opposite of what we might think he was trying as an arbitrator actually to achieve. Indeed, polarization is one of the most serious concerns in contemporary democracies, as the Reith lecturer this year observed um, in, in his first lecture. But again, Plutarch, I think, helps us to understand this law. And he writes, in trying to explain it, he says, this seems paradoxical, but he writes, it seems that the goal is to avoid apathy and indifference to common interests. So the danger that Solon's law is trying to avoid is the danger that some people will engage in putting private affairs in safety and glorying in not sharing in the, sick, the disgrace and sickness of the country. So the idea is that people should have to face the same perils. They should actually take part in the strife and try to make it come out in the just way, rather than sitting back and waiting safely for the dispositions of the winners. So I think, again, that this way of thinking about civic participation is in keeping with the clear-sighted approach to justice that I've argued that Solon held and that he took from the basic Greek idea that justice should be clear-sighted, not blindfolded. There will likely always be factions who remain too tempted to impose terms of justice that suit themselves and who may be countered only by those who see them for what they are. So this is what Solon's Law is trying to achieve. We have to see when people are trying to impose unjust terms and take sides in order to prevent that. So while justice should indeed be blindfolded in some circumstances, as for judges and jurors, I think that the ancient Greek image 
of the goddesses of justice having keen eyesight offers less familiar but equally compelling food for thought. We may need to be able to see and arbitrate the injustices that society faces if we are to live up to the ideals of justice now as Solon and others sought imperfect, imperfectly also to do then. So thank you and please join me next time for Ancient Greek Ideas of Equality Under the Law and thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, um, as ever, Melissa, magisterial performance. Um, I, I feel um, I should first of all acknowledge the fact that I've lived my life under a veil of ignorance, and you've <laughs> lifted it for me to some, some extent. And um, there are so many striking parallels with modern society and the various levels of inequity that we see in many worlds. I mean, if you go back in America 100 years ago with the robber barons and so on, and now in many areas of British life. How would you adapt legal systems, let's just take either one of those countries, mm. in order to adopt the principles of fairness, whether they be Rawlsian or Salonian? Yeah, thank you. So, so I, I, I do think that this idea that one needs to be able to identify and pinpoint where real power differentials exist in order to be able to then design appropriate legal instruments. I think that's a very important sort of application of the Greek idea of the clear-sighted approach that I've been developing. So I flashed the Piketty image um, very briefly, but of course he and other scholars, Emmanuel Saez um, and Gabriel Zuckman and others, have done very important work in trying to pinpoint the real sources of wealth inequalities and their real, just simply their real distribution. How much is the difference between the 10% and the 2%, between the 2% and the 1%, between the 1% and the 0.1%, those are real differences. And if one sort of just lumps them together or puts them behind a veil, one actually fails to be conscious of the real sources of potential political inequality and the dangers that those can pose. I think also of Michael Marmot's work, for example, um, that's been so important in identifying the ways in which um, inequalities in social hierarchies can kind of feed into health inequalities. So again, I think we need to be able to identify those in order to then design the legal instruments that, that could adequately address them. I, I was struck as well by, I'm not going to pronounce this word very well, I suspect, the seismic word. Yes, seismic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because um, just, I'm not sure if you were on a flight when this was all happening, but the new legislation that came in to repay the post office yes. had great similarities with that. So you make a, a big event which could have unforeseen consequences in an applied to other situations. Do you, do you see that as a parallel, or is it something very different? I mean, well, that, that's very interesting. I, I, I have been following that as much as possible because, of course, it also is so resonant of the concern with accountability, which I was discussing in my first Gresham lecture. So, you know, when one sees this profound um, uh, failure of justice and, you know, uh, car carrying out of injustice, and then the question is, how do you rectify that? I mean, I think what's different about it is, of course, that in this case, there was a specific act of, or specific acts, many specific acts of injustice, which now have to be rectified. So there's a sort of rectification aspect. I mean, Solon, in a way, was saying, we just need to make a blank slate on debts and start again. Yeah. So even if those debts had been accumulated legally at the time, it had gotten to a kind of unsustainable place. So in that way, I think they're not exactly comparable, but, but I do think that you know, this question of you know, how can you set fair terms after you know, sort of really serious injustice has been done. And of course, you know, it, it's, you can't fully do that. Whatever compensation you give, whatever exoneration you pass, there will still have been, you know, kind of real consequences to people's lives that, that can't be fully undone. Do you think that the main difference between Rawls and Solon is that Rawls was an idealist kind of thing? He was really for the ideal world kind of thing. Well, Solon was more a practical person 
and a compromise kind of thing yeah. is the name of the game in compromise. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I recognize you from my first lecture, so thank you for, for being here again. Um, yes. Absolutely. I think, in, in a way, I think that would be the standard way we would contrast them, and I think there is a lot of truth in that. Um, Rawls is kind of thinking through hypothetically how could we remake the terms. Solon, as I emphasized, was a real person in a real concrete political situation, you know, who had to make terms that both sides would accept and not lead to civil war, sort of stand down from the possibility of civil war that was perhaps looming. Um, so I think that is right. But then I tried to also suggest that in some way, though, they both have an idealist dimension because they both see that we need to transform people's ideas of themselves and of kind of the, the, the customs and habits through which they should interact in order for those terms that are realistically even imposed to really be sustainable. So that was what I was also arguing, is that even Solon as a realist didn't want to leave it as simply a bargain that was kind of held in place only by sort of mutual wariness and self-interest, but he also wanted to transform people's practices and funerals and feasts and all these other ways so that they would sort of more more truly accept the terms of justice um, as, as a moral arrangement and not simply a self-interested bargain. Next question. So if we, um, we've concentrated a lot on disparities of, of wealth, um, less so on opportunity or, yeah. for example, education. Mm. Are there other differences in distributive justice which these rules which you have described, rules, laws, have described would apply, or can they be applied to non-wealth situations? Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I emphasize wealth so much is that I think that often we are a bit idealistic about the Greeks, again, and we don't realize, actually, ancient societies, Greek and Roman, were absolutely organized around these relationships between the rich and the poor. That's, you know, so, you know, I think many of us who have the experience of teaching ancient Greek and Roman thought and and sort of political history, you know, students think, well, you're imposing this on them, but it's, it's actually just completely there in the sources. That's the fundamental thing that they saw themselves as addressing. So, so that's why I emphasize that so much. Um, but, but having said that, you know, I, 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 did, um, I do think that it's also important that Solon also had these ideas about political inclusion more broadly. So, you know, yes, we will have some people holding office, but other people will be able to hold them to account through popular juries and other means. Um, so I think that was important. Um, education is an interesting question because many forms of education in the archaic and classical Greek worlds were restricted to the wealthy or, or generally available mainly to the wealthy. So hiring special tutors for grammar or music, that was something that would only be done if you were wealthy. But there were some forms of sort of common civic practice, mostly for, so in Athens, for example, between the ages of 18 and 20, young men would be kind of educated into um, civic military practices and other civic practices. And the plays, the dramatic festivals, um, I talked about Aeschylus, those were a form of civic education that was actually available to all. As far as we know, non-citizens attended the plays, maybe slaves, we don't know for sure, maybe women, we don't know for sure. But that was a sort of popular education that put on stage dramatizations of ideas of justice and other values and everyone could engage with them. So there, there were ways in which the common civic culture was, was sort of developed. Um, so I just, I just want to follow up on the sort of point you made actually, it was the one I was thinking of asking just before. I'm an economist, so I'm thinking about the economic angle. Yeah. And these people got into debt for a reason. Presumably, if they weren't given the skills and the, to, and the education to change their life chances, they were going to get into debt again. So was this a recurring problem was one issue. And the second issue mm. is you talked about the sort of the possibilities to switch wealth between different very wealthy parties to avoid... Yeah paying for things, but I was also thinking at the time about, and you, 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 about the way in which wealthy people will put their name on you know, right. monuments today, um, 
be it the Sacklers or others, you know, yeah. as a way of giving something back, perhaps. So, you know, it wasn't necessarily about tax, but it's, you know, yeah. a way of actually ingratiating themselves, perhaps, or whatever. Yes, thank you so much. Those are both great questions. So on the first question, I think we can think of Solon's measures as having, um, there was the one-off, I mean, really, we should say Sysakthea, but I wanted to emphasize the seismic root that we now say with that kind of vowel sound. So, um, uh, so there was the Sysakthea, the one-off cancellation of debts that was a kind of one-off reset, but then there was the, the abolition of um, uh, loans secured on the, on the person, which then prevented people from, from falling into um, the perils of debt slavery of certain kinds in the future. So those two things were kind of separate. Now, it's true that the one-off measure, as far as we know, was never passed again, but then having that ongoing kind of floor prevented you know, the, the, those, those perils for individuals in the future. Um, so um, on the, the second, sorry, remind me of the second point. The second point was about the way that people would be asked to contribute, the wealth oh, would yes. be asked to contribute. Yes, so yeah, so, th so this is very interesting. So, so yes, in the classical period, people did get credit of those kinds for donations, but we especially see that in the Hellenistic period. So in the Hellenistic period, which is just after classical Greece, so kind of from the um, very late fourth century um, onward till roughly the second or first century, depending when you, when you um, draw an end to it. But the, in the Hellenistic period, there's a tremendous emphasis on individual donations and people being kind of uh, honored in monuments and in um, uh, decrees of cities for making those kinds of donations. So it becomes an increasingly important way in which people both cement kind of, of course, it gives them a kind of political status through using their wealth in those ways. So the Athenian institution that I was talking about was sort of compulsory giving, but then you also had, even at that time, and certainly even more later, the opportunities for people to kind of do voluntary giving as well and then be also recognized um, for that. Yes, um, I wanted to follow up on a, a point that I think you were making about Solon society being one where divisions and relative wealth was much more fixed. If you're rich, it's very, very unlikely you were going to end up at, with your children yeah. in slavery. Yeah. And I was wondering whether you, we, we're so interested now in his ideas because we're feeling that a little bit now. Social mobility mm. going down, mm. the drivers of social mobility being linked to genetics, et cetera, et cetera. And whether actually rules was a bit of an anomaly just because of the time he was writing. Um, this, this and I just wanted to ask you more, if you could say a bit more about that. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. So you're picking up on the point that I was making about the, the kind of caveat that, you know, when we think about Greek society, they were concerned about people falling below the floor, but they, they didn't expect that many people would actually kind of rise to the top. And it's, I, I don't know about the genetics point. I'm not, I'm not familiar with what you're referring to there. Um, and, and I, you know, I would... Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not familiar with the evidence about that. But on the general point of are we not seeing as much social mobility now, I think that is a very important point. And again, that goes back to the need for transparency about these things because in many ways our kind of self-images of many societies, perhaps even America more than, than Britain, you know, is an image of, of a kind of possibility for social mobility that is simply not, in fact, any more captured by the realities. And so, again, we need that clear-sightedness in order to tell us this is not really possible to the same extent in the same ways, we're not seeing it, and then to be able to try to design policy instruments and interventions that could, could try to um, address that. So it's an interesting point. I hadn't meant to make the point of the parallel, but I think you're right, actually, um, to point it out. Let's go to the, over there at the back. That'll be the last question, if you don't mind. Awesome. Thank you very much for that. Um, I just wanted to get your take on a point that ties into one of the last things you were referring to about that civic participation point yeah. and kind of Solon kind of encouraging that more so versus the apathy. I mean, this year's a big year for kind of elections across the globe, particularly yeah. in the UK and the US. Um, yeah. One of the, both countries where voting is not compulsory in either country. How do you think Solon would have kind of, if you could mm -hmm. have a take on that modern aspect, how he would have approached that and whether or not he would have kind of encouraged more active and mandatory participation in those aspects of society rather than kind of what we have today? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question, and you know, I think that that idea that the idea that you have to take sides could translate into an idea of compulsory voting as as exists in Australia, of course, um, for example. Um, I think that's a very natural um, application of that thought, and I think very much for the same reason, that actually people shouldn't be able to stand back and say, it doesn't matter, I'm just going to see what happens, you know, let other people decide, uh, you know, it's, it's a choice between two evils or something like that. They actually should be made to think, well, which is the lesser evil? And actually, you know, support that because that's important for the society to have a, a relatively more just outcome. Of course, it might not be a perfectly just outcome. It won't be. But, but I think, so I think that's, thank you for suggesting that. I think that is, in fact, um, a way in which Solon's idea make, could make sense to us, whereas it looks initially so alien, you know, take sides, factionalize. But actually, you know, we do have the idea that people should, you know, ultimately conclude which side they stand on in an election and and play a role in, in that civic determination. And, you know, of course, ancient Athens also had other institutions in which people had to participate, those who were, those who were citizens, um, in order to um, help the society as a whole to, to function. And so I think that idea does have a, an ancient Greek and especially Athenian resonance um, that, that, we, that we could learn from. Such an important point uh, in common with, I think, half the world's population is voting this year. Mm, that's right. It gives us a good opportunity to exercise yeah. our rights. Thank you very much for telling us a good way to go and a wonderful lecture again. We look forward to March when you're giving two and I hope you'll join us uh, when Melissa is back again. Melissa, thank you very thank much. Thank you again. very much. Mm -hmm.